Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast, this time catching up with Zarina Zabriskie in Ukraine. As we'll hear, that's not an easy thing to do. In response to being pushed out of Kherson, Russia has attacked Ukraine's energy infrastructure, causing widespread power cuts. Before we chat to Zarina, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our monthly newspaper, which features wonderful content that you can cannot read anywhere else. But we haven't got a millionaire backer. There's no big corporation. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, independent journalism. Find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions cost from as little as £3 a month. So please, if you can, do support our work. More details at bylinetimes.com. Let's welcome then Zarina Zabriskie, who is in Ukraine in a cafe. Where exactly are you, Zarina? Which city are you in? Hi, Adrian. It's so nice to hear from you. I know we didn't speak for a while because I was traveling and then later was trying to find the connection because it's not that easy anymore. So currently I am talking to you from Odessa. And Zarina, I know that you've been in Kherson, which is the city in the south of the country, which was liberated from Russia. That was an amazing victory. But things have started to come to light now about the Russian occupation of the city, including allegations of torture. Yes, Adrian, it's quite a story. In fact, the Russians have retreated from Kherson on November 11th. They have left after much speculation on what's going to happen there. And they were not able to stand the battle because in a very sly military maneuver, the Ukrainian militaries were targeting the logistics warehouses and bases of the Russian troops. And then eventually they had no resources to fight back and just had to leave. So there were not as many losses on the Ukrainian side or on the Russian side as could have happened. And it was quite a task for the Kremlin to justify this retreat because important to know here, Adrian, that uh, Kherson was the only major city that the Russians were able to to capture in the very beginning of the war and through the course of this unprovoked and illegal aggression of the Russian Federation and Ukraine. So within the first three or four days, Kherson was captured by the Russian troops and was under the occupation for more than eight months, almost nine months. And it also has an important strategic significance because it is basically the base from which the Russian commandment headquarters were going to move to Mykolaiv, which they targeted really intensely with their daily bombardments. And from there, the plan was to move to the seaport of Odessa and even to Transnistria in Moldova, of which we will speak in a few moments as well. So none of this happened, as you can see, because in the move of a goodwill, which has become a meme and a joke uh, in the Ukrainian information space, the Russians moved their troops and the they gave a reason for the Russian population that that move was to save the lives 
of the Russian soldiers because the Ukrainians were going to run a number of provocations and it was dangerous for the civilians and for the Russian military in the area. But since the Russians retreated, there have been detention centers uncovered in four buildings that the Russian forces used. And there have been suggestions of implements of torture having been found there, rubber batons, a wooden bat, the mechanism for delivering electric shocks, for example, to prisoners. That is correct, Adrian. And I have been on the site of uh, two of these torture sites, one of the prosecutor's uh, office in Kherson, and spoke to a number of people who were tortured. I'm actually right now writing somewhat a bigger article for the Byline Times, which you should check in if you're interested, coming up within the next week or so. More of a study of use of torture as the strategy of the Kremlin. It's a policy, not just a fluke and not just sadistic tendencies of one or two or several Russian military, because the patterns that are being revealed and the torture modes that are being used are the same in different districts, regions, and territories liberated in Ukraine. I have been, and I believe we spoke about that, and there's an article on the Byline Times website already, you can check it out, on the use of torture in the Kharkiv liberated area by Izum and Kazakhstan Lopen, where I visited about a month or two ago. So I spoke to several people, at least three gentlemen who were tortured by the Russians in different spots. Usually it is a basement and they are being kidnapped with a bag on their heads. Usually it's in the middle of the night. And then they're kept there. They're, often there are cages uh, that have been built there, although not every time. And they're using certain modes of torture that everybody confirms are the same. And these people were not friends. They didn't know each other. I spoke to them in different districts of Kherson at two different occasions. And what is more alarming and disturbing even uh, revelation, Adrian, it came up yesterday in The Guardian, and I've chosen not to cover it because I just didn't have it in me. I'm already working on the big torture piece, which is a follow-up. But there were reports of the use of the city dump for burning of the bodies, for burning of corpses that people had related to me. I have audio recordings and the Guardian did follow up and they they published a big article about that so I confirm this record it is true and many citizens could feel the smell of burnt flesh and hair unfortunately coming from the dump it's very very grim stuff isn't it what is the situation in terms of power supplies and daily life now in Odessa, because obviously the Russians haven't gone away. Even in Kherson, they're just the other side of the Dnipro River from the city. And it's as though they're punishing Ukraine now for the audacity to have forced them out of Kherson. Well, exactly so. The residents of Kherson are left without 
power, water, heat, you name it, internet connection. Basically, they have nothing. Nevertheless, the spirit is so high. I can tell you, Adrian, just being there on Monday, November 14th, when Zelensky visited, and I got lucky enough to stand very close to him at the press conference, and there's a video. You can check out the video and the interviews on the channel that I run with my Ukrainian colleagues. It's called EBT News on YouTube. It's a new channel, and there's a lot of material there that doesn't make way for to other media, because I work with Ukrainian journalists and fixers, it's very unique. So I interviewed a lot of residents of Kherson who came to the main square to celebrate their liberty, their freedom, and the feeling of acceleration, of the, the way they describe freedom, the way they can feel the smell of freedom is unbelievable. So many people cried. I cried too. I was interviewing these people and I was crying. You can watch it. We finally managed to put together a piece, even though our crew is working without power at home. So we have to run around the desk and leave looking for places that would let us use their power outlets and internet source. Well, it's, uh, it's needs must, isn't it, at a time like this and in a place like the one that you're in at the moment. You mentioned earlier Moldova. Now, we've spoken previously about Moldova and how this part of Moldova called Transnistria has a Russian-speaking population, and Russia was attempting to use Transnistria as some kind of bridgehead into Ukraine because Moldova sits between Russia and Ukraine at one point of the landmass there. And Moldova overall as a nation is pro-Europe. It wants to support as best it can the defence of Ukraine. It doesn't want to side with Russia, and it's being punished for that now. Well, yes, Adrian, Moldova is on the very west border of Ukraine, and there's so much that these two countries have in common. They share history, they share ports, they share border. They both used to be part of the Soviet Union and both left in 1991. So both countries have 30 years of independence now, looking back, but two histories are very, very different. And Moldova has traditionally been playing with the Kremlin because it is dependent completely on the gas and on the energy supplies from the Russian Federation. And for that, Transnistria plays a major role because it is a en- Russian enclave within Moldova. It's tiny and it's extremely pro-Russian. They are supplied by the Russian gas, by Gazprom, at ridiculous prices, basically for free. And so what Gazprom, or say the Kremlin, did in September, they cut off the supplies of the gas, which is consequently the source of electricity production in Transnistria. And Moldova has been buying the electricity, 70% of its supplies, of its needs, from Transnistria, from the large electricity plant there. So once the Russian Federation stopped supplying gas to Transnistria, Moldova found itself without 
electricity because the rest of its needs were covered by Ukraine. 30% of its electricity supply was coming from Ukraine. So at the same time as the Kremlin cut off the supply to Transnistria, Russian military started to attack Ukrainian infrastructure. So Ukraine couldn't supply electricity to Moldova either. So what the Moldovan government had to do, they had to turn to Romania, which is the neighboring country on the other side of Moldova, for buying electricity. However, Romania, which is also quite a poor country, Moldova being the poorest country in Europe, had to supply electricity and the international market prices. And the Moldovan budget is just not made for it. So there's a major economic problem, which is being weaponized by the Kremlin. And uh, when I was there, I reported from the staged protests, Adrian, and you could read another article at the Byline Time on the Moldovan situation, where I report from this ridiculous staged Potemkin protests, where uh, babushkas, like the old retired women from villages, are being bused to Chisinau, the capital of Moldova, for the price of $10 a day by thousands. And I trace them back to the buses and I have it all filmed. And also there's a video on the EBT news that you can watch. It's quite a ridiculous side and also pitiful, shameful, really, uh, because they exploit this old and destitute people for their needs. And this protest against the current pro-EU government of Maya Sandu, and they're run by a pro-Russian oligarch. So the goal is the same as in Ukraine, is to remove the pro-EU, pro-European, pro-democracy authorities and use the people's exhaustion and negative feelings to make them side with Russia. The same thing that they were doing in Donetsk and Luhansk in 2014. And we also see the same campaign going on in Odessa, where I am now, where they are being the Russian propagandists, trying to turn the Odessa residents, Odessa authorities, and against Zelensky's government, blaming Zelensky's government for the blackouts. Russian propaganda continues then in real time on the ground, and as we know, through the internet as well, the information war, which we've discussed with you and with our colleague in the United States, Heidi Kuda, uh, the radicalised part as well. This is a, a war being fought on many, many fronts. I do want to ask you finally about the Zaporizhia nuclear plant because there are still concerns that some kind of stray missile might cause a nuclear mishap. Ah, yes, Adrian, and we did speak about that, in fact, and I wrote a number of articles for the Byline Times and for Euromaidan Press, and we spoke about that because, again, we are talking about the hybrid war. It's really important to have the big picture in mind, and this is, by the way, why I love working with you and with Byline Times, um, the newspaper, and uh, Heidi Kuda, Radicalized Podcast, because these outlets do have this major 
picture, political landscape in mind. We are in the state of a hybrid war. And the aggressor is using and weaponizing every single field that it can get access to. And nuclear industry is one of them. And of course, Ukraine being an important nuclear industry state, having five nuclear power stations is being used as a, another way to blackmail the world community. Chernobyl was going to be used as a dirty bomb, but then the troops had to retreat so that they couldn't do. And now, of course, they are sitting on the Parisia, and I believe that the International Agency of Energy, the IAEA, and the General Director Grossi should make their position more clear because they just yesterday, I believe, or the day before yesterday, said that whoever has been damaging the infrastructure, the Parisia is playing with fire. But we all know who is playing with fire there. It is not in the interest of the Ukrainian government, of the Ukrainian military, or the Ukrainian people to set on fire, quote-unquote, their old nuclear power plant that has been supplying electricity to their country which is now experiencing major blackouts. And it is not Ukraine which started this war. So really, the international agencies and United Nations should take more pronounced position on that and name things their names and not speak in Isop language anymore. Zarina, it's great to chat with you. I'm going to let you go because clearly the restaurant or the cafe where you are is pretty busy. There are a few moving tables and so on. It's great that you're able to talk to us, though. And Can I just have one departing message? Yeah. One of the most important things now is to advocate for closing the sky over Ukraine and to make the sky over Ukraine no-fly zone. I spoke about it to Heidi Kudon, radicalized, uh, because... And you've mentioned that before on this podcast as well, the need for Ukraine to have military support. And you're not talking about the British Air Force or the Polish Air Force or the US Air Force patrolling the skies above Ukraine, are you? But you're talking about major countries giving Ukraine the weaponry that it needs to shoot down Russian aircraft and drones. Exactly, the air defense, because that will be the pivotal point in this war. It's very, very simple. And that will be my departing message on this podcast. Just think about it. A child is able to understand that. The Russians are retreating on the ground. They are unable to make any advances on the ground. The only way that they are damaging the Ukrainian infrastructure and the the country of Ukraine and proceeding with their genocidal war is from the air. And if the airspace is closed, it will be over very soon. So we as regular citizens of the world can do our part by say, making the hashtag close the sky trend so the mass media, the major mass media and the politicians start paying attention to show that the public opinion of the world is behind Ukraine and to save lives because we're talking millions by now. 
Zarina, thank you so much. And just to emphasise how interlinked these struggles are, I know that Germany and France have pledged millions of euros in support for Moldova, which, as Zarina says, is the poorest country in Europe, currently being squeezed economically and in terms of its energy supplies by Russia. The UK and the US and other European nations, of course, have given military aid as well, significant amounts of military aid to Ukraine. But as you've heard from Zarina, more is needed. This is a threat not just to one country on the east of our continent. It's ultimately a threat to us all. Zarina, thank you so much. And thank you to your hosts in the restaurant where you are. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's a brilliant monthly newspaper. If you buy a subscription for that, you're helping to support this podcast too. And thanks also to Harvey White, who has helped out with production on this episode. Do head over to bylinetimes.com for details of how to subscribe. I'm Adrian Goldberg. I'll see you again very, very soon. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Bye-bye now.